The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans. Here is what's ahead. The Fed rally is fading. The Dow holding on to gains by its fingernails, but the Nasdaq the big loser today and the only major index still lower for December. So what has changed since yesterday? And how do you play this market? Plus, a boost for battered AT&T shares today, higher on an upgrade and a price target that sees the stock climbing more than 20%. The analyst behind that call joins us to make his case. And Google versus Disney, Reddit files to go public, and an under-the-radar restaurant stock being served some love on the street. But we begin with today's markets and, of course, Dom Chu with the numbers. We're going to focus on the NASDAQ as we have often, John, because it is pretty much the epicenter of what's happening with regard to the mixed market that we're seeing. The Dow Industrials are actually flat on this session, although towards the lows of the day right now, you can see 35,949 the last trade there, relatively flat, just up 21 points. The S&P is down roughly one half of 1%, 27 handles, 46,81 the last trade there. But the big trade here, 2% losses for the NASDAQ composite right now, down 322 points, 15,243 the last trade there. Much of that is due to some weakness in mega cap technology names, specifically ones like Apple and Microsoft. But also watch what's happening with software related names and cloud computing stocks, because while we have seen mixed reactions on a year to day basis, it's these legs lower over the course of the last three weeks here that have a lot of traders paying close attention. Is technology software specifically in cloud computing perhaps more revalued at a lower level, given the prospect for things like higher interest rates, growth rates ahead? And if, by the way, you wanted to see real evidence of just the divergence within some of those technology trades, check out the intraday action right now in the best performing and the worst performing stock within the S&P 500. Accenture up 9% right now after its earnings report, the IT tech consulting firm, driven a lot by demand for its cyber-related consulting services and cloud computing-related services, is up big. Meanwhile, a big software player, Adobe, is down 9% in trading today because it reports earnings that were generally better, but more mixed. Both companies, though, Accenture upped its forecast. Adobe put out a forecast that came in below some analyst expectations. The reason for the big divergence there in technology, ACN versus ADBE, John. Adobe, I know it's a company that you're very familiar with. It's been a steep move lower over the course of the last couple of days here. Yeah, I started covering that company as a beat reporter back in the year 2000, Dom. Uh, It's come a long way since then. As Dom mentioned, yesterday's enthusiasm following the Fed meeting couldn't carry into a second day as tech falls apart a bit. So what is this turn in sentiment telling us? Cheryl Pate is a portfolio manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. Welcome. Uh, You know, the Dow kind of barely holding on to some gains, but leading the Dow lower. Apple, how often do we say that? And Verizon the best performing within that component. What's going on here? Yeah, I think what we really saw out of the Fed yesterday, you know, three key takeaways. One, you have an increasingly data-dependent Fed that's that's quickly going to adapt and and change based on the data that's coming out. Um, Secondly, the playbook is quite different this time, and they've been very clear um, that the economy is very strong going into 
this rate hike um, that we're expecting to, to start uh, lifting off in 2022. And then thirdly, max employment um, is not necessary um, to see liftoff. So I think you're seeing a real divergence between longer duration equities, tech specifically, and significant outperformance uh, by banks and, and other diversified financials, which are positively levered to higher rates. Yeah, you like banks uh, and diversified financials in this environment, but do you like the ones that have underperformed recently or the ones that have been best performing? Does it matter within that cohort where you go? I, I think what matters is growth. And that's what we're really focused on. Um, we're seeing a lot of green shoots of inflecting growth from the H8 data. The credit card data from the Master Trust yesterday was incredibly positive. Um, loans are showing up near 7% year over year um, for the industry at wide. And um, you're starting to see pickup in commercial lending as well, which we actually think is going to really accelerate in 2022 as some of these supply chain shortages work their way out. So growth is really the name of the day. We like the credit card stocks um, specifically. They are a little beaten down on potential credit cycle fears, but I think growth far outweighs that. And then from you know a, a pure bank perspective, we really like the regional banks. They're asset sensitive. They're very positively levered to higher um, Fed fund rates, but also within that sector, some really strong growth trajectories from um, some names like Silicon Valley. Now, I know that a few months ago, we heard so much the world is forever changed. Uh, a lot of software names were being talked up. Uh, yes, tech it, it has weakened a bit. Some names in tech have weakened a lot. If the world has changed, are there some bargains to be found, perhaps in names that have gotten beaten down the most over the past few weeks and months? I think there are some bargains. I think there has been perhaps a bit of an overshoot on some of these growth um, driven not only tech names, but even if we look towards payment processing, Visa and MasterCard, for example, um, are really trading at recessionary type, type levels um, when the, the outlook going forward is to get back to um, pretty uh, impressive consumer spending numbers, a pickup in travel, uh, a pickup in small business. Um, so I think that's all positive for some of these stocks that have really taken the brunt um, of some of the downside in the recent weeks. And what does that do for a retail investor, at least some segment of retail investors that have gotten so used to dealing in ETFs uh, specifically? Uh, I don't know if there's an ETF. I mean, I guess the, the cloud uh, ETF is, is one of them, one of the popular cloud ETFs that, that captures some of that bargain sentiment. Or are we back to uh, a stock picker's market, as we like to say? I do think it's a stock picker's market. I think we are going to see increasing volatility in the market overall as we sort of transition uh, back towards um, a higher rate environment. I think there will be, you know, some potential disruptions going forward from uh, potentially new variants coming out and potentially slowing down um, some parts of the market. So I do think um, stock picking uh, comes back in vogue here. All right. Uh, makes sense from a portfolio manager. Uh, Cheryl, thank you. Thank you. Now to a bold call in the telecom space. Shares of AT&T popping after Morgan Stanley upgraded the stock to overweight from neutral. AT&T shares have had a tough year, down nearly 20%, and are near the lowest level since 2009. Simon Flannery, analyst and managing director at Morgan Stanley, made the call, joins me now. 
Simon, uh, this is a tough one because the dividend uh, payout, in a way, isn't what it used to be, I guess. But why is the value here right now? Sure. Thanks for having me on, John. So really, we've seen a significant underperformance by the telecom stocks uh, during 2022 on fears of wireless wars. But actually, underlying performance has been pretty good. AT&T has led the wireless industry on subscriber growth for the last couple of quarters. And we still see good momentum in the core communications business uh, going through the next couple of years. But really, the genesis of our call is combining the attractive entry point on valuation with the upcoming completion of the Warner Media Discovery transaction. So over the next few months, we're going to get a lot more clarity around what sort of structure they're going to have for shareholders to uh, get that discovery deal completed. And then by the middle of the year, that should be completed. And you're right, they're going to change the dividend policy, pay out between 8 and $9 billion. But on a pro forma basis, uh, this will have a yield of about 7%, which will still be one of the top three or top five in the S&P 500 with a delevered balance sheet, uh, free cash flow after dividends. So we think it should be a really interesting story. And right now, the, the lack of clarity around the deal is, is sort of holding investors back. Okay. Uh, now, now, where are we in the capital spending cycle around 5G for AT&T and, and perhaps for um, telecoms in general? I mean, it seems like they're still subsidizing smartphones quite a bit, particularly trying to incentivize individuals and businesses into all-you-can-eat type 5G plans. But does that indicate that there's going to be a lot more spending? Is that something investors should be concerned about? Sure. It's it's a great point. We saw a big 5G spectrum auction C-band end up earlier this year, and the carriers all talked about big spending, really, from a 21 through to a 2023 period. In addition, AT&T has a major fiber upgrade program, and that's one of the reasons we uh, particularly like the communications infrastructure stocks uh, like the tower sector, because we think they're going to benefit on that side of it. But nonetheless, uh, we still see a path to strong free cash flow generation during this investment period, uh, which will allow them to continue to return uh, capital to shareholders. There's a lot of talk about metaverse, whatever various people think that is, but whatever it is, people are going to need to be connected to it, probably while they move around, which could be good for the likes of an AT&T. But um, to, to what degree do you think they're prepared to take advantage of that? And when would that be something that you factor into your outlook? Sure. We've heard a lot about it. And, and this comes into the category of they're building these new 5G networks and these new fiber networks. And what are the killer apps for them? We're seeing a lot of interest in fixed wireless uh, that's coming through. We're seeing a lot of business to business applications and things like augmented reality and virtual reality and, and the metaverse uh, show a lot of promise. And we can see more wearables, glasses and so forth over the next several quarters. And so it won't just be selling smartphones, but it's going to be uh, these additional devices that are going to be generating additional revenues. I do think it's an important question on monetizing that because if you look at the LTE world, uh, the telco carriers um, did fine, but in, in many cases, it was some of the other tech companies that did even better out of 4G. Yeah. And how much are they going to have to subsidize the equipment to get people into the metaverse if that is their plan? Simon, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, John. Coming up, the Fed sees as many as three rate hikes in 2022. And that'll have a big impact on Main Street bankers and businesses. Up next, the CEO of FrostBank joins us exclusively to talk rates, inflation, and the impact on the consumer. Plus, Rivian reporting its first quarterly results as a public company tonight. We will tell you what to expect and the key numbers to watch. The exchange is back after this. 
This is The Exchange on CNBC. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The S&P Regional Banks Index up nearly 40% this year. And with Jay Powell and the Fed getting more hawkish at yesterday's meeting, banks could see even more of a boost next year. Joining me now is Phil Green, Frost Bank Chairman and CEO. Phil, uh, how do rising rates really change the game uh, beyond the expectations we've already seen show up in the market? Well, John, thanks for having me today. Uh, We're really positioned well for higher rates. And man, we've been waiting for this for some time. Uh, We've seen inflation on Main Street for a good while now. And uh, we've been moving our balance sheet more and more into liquid uh, instruments. In fact, if you look today, 30% of our balance sheet is in a checking account at the Federal Reserve earning 15 basis points. So we're really watching the short end and we're hopeful that we'll see some movement up in the near term. So what happens when perhaps consumer and business appetite for risk also starts to slacken off, maybe even more than uh, the interest rate increases themselves have an impact? I mean, we're at such a low level now, even three increases, you know, probably won't do that much. But if they shift the mindset and the, and the sentiment that they could have an impact. Have you thought about that? Well, if you're talking about shifting it so that there'll be less activity, I guess that's possible. That's probably what's partially behind what the Fed wants to do. But honestly, we're seeing so much demand today that it would be hard to imagine that some modest increases like you had mentioned would, would really shut things off. We'd seen really good growth in our loan portfolio consistently since the June inflection that we had. And that really happened through the Delta variant. And so far, we're seeing it through what's happened with Omicron. So uh, we're hopeful that we would con- continue to see good activity um, in, in our loan book, and, uh, and we'd expect that. I also mean, uh, for the consumer part of your business, the types of services that consumers demand. Maybe there's a shift away from trading type products, you know, like the Robin Hoods of the world, which we've seen fall in the markets, and maybe towards savings uh, products, because maybe you'll actually be able to earn a little bit more of a fraction on your savings. Well, I think that's a good observation, and they will be able to. And so uh, I think you'll see some more demand as, as prices go up. Savers have really had to bear some of the brunt of this, uh, this policy that we've seen. So what does that do to uh, the whole movement in fintech? And I'm not talking about companies that get called fintech. 
I mean, financial companies even like yours that are trying to offer experiences and servers, uh, services to consumers, to small businesses, et cetera, uh, to, to better serve them. Where are you going to have to put that investment in an environment where you expect rates to possibly rise uh, for the foreseeable future? What we're doing on investment is we are implementing a hybrid model where we're taking great technology and we're marrying it with high touch and physical presence. We've been expanding our locations, doubled our locations in Houston. We're in the middle of, uh, of uh, tripling our locations, beginning that process in beginning in January for our Dallas market. So we are combining the high touch part of it with high tech. So we're investing across the, the, across the entire spectrum uh, and we really believe it's gonna help us. And we're actually seeing great account growth today. In fact, as of June of this year, we exceeded our all-time high annual growth in new customer acquisition. And we've seen that continue to follow on in, separate, in September. What do you expect to happen with lower income families and customers who've been hit so hard by the latest inflation and also tend to be either unbanked or underbanked, is there the possibility of technologies uh, stepping into the gap with rates rising to help that customer? I think so. I think that um, we, we need to be cognizant of the impact this is having on, uh, on individuals, and uh, inflation is a, is a tax on them, so it's something we need to be, be careful of. I think you're seeing not just neobanks, but you're also seeing the banking industry respond. Take us, for example, we introduced the early payday product uh, just a few months ago where you get your paycheck two days early. That was a, a, a high-value proposition for fintechs. And we also, back in uh, earlier this year, implemented what we call overdraft grace, where we'll pay your overdraft $100 and below at no charge, as long as you have a small direct deposit with us. So those kind of things, I think, are helping people through this period of time. Yeah, those moves potentially big. That's real money. Uh, Phil, thank you. Phil Green. Still ahead, airline execs questioning the need for masks in their testimony before Congress yesterday, but not everyone's on board with that. We will hear from the head of the Association of Flight Attendants next and take a look at semi-stocks getting hit hard today. The semi, uh, semiconductor sector ETF, SMH, falling more than 3%. NXP and Broadcom leading the declines. The exchange is back after this. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own. Trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own. Leave the kids with grandma. Yay! Trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. Welcome back. It's been a year when unruly flyers have been refusing to wear masks and 
Comments by two airline CEOs might have just thrown jet fuel on that fire. In a congressional hearing ostensibly about bailout money, the CEOs of Southwest and American effectively questioned the need for a mask mandate in the air. I think the case uh, is very strong that uh, masks don't add much, if anything, uh, in the uh, air cabin environment. It's very safe and very high quality com compared to uh, uh, any other indoor setting. I concur. The, air, the aircraft is the safest place you can be. Um, it's true of all of our aircraft. They all have these HEPA filters in the same airflow. I'll note the TSA extended the mask mandate earlier this month, and the administrator, quote, has said frequently that the combination of vaccinations and face masks work and are highly effective in terms of the slowing the spread of the virus in the transportation system, and they make travel safer for everyone. Joining me now is someone who has to enforce these mandates, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, Sarah Nelson. Uh, Sarah, American tried to walk back uh, what its CEO said, uh, but I can imagine this only makes a difficult situation more difficult. Uh, was this just them putting their foot in their mouths, trying to tout how safe it is inside the plane, or what do you think? Well, first of all, I was sitting at the uh, witness table there. And when that happened in the hearing, that was extremely unfortunate. I was shocked, actually. Um, and this is uh, not the way that the industry has responded with putting announcements in place, clear communications about the enforcement of those mask policies. Frankly, I worked with these people to put these mask policies in place well before the federal government did in order to keep people safe and also to encourage confidence in air travel. Now, I want to correct the record, though, because I was in that hearing room and then asked about it. Doug Parker has corrected uh, the record on this. They didn't try to walk it back. He absolutely didn't hear what Gary Kelly said about the masks. He was responding to the HEPA filtration. And if you listen to his answer, that's what that was about. So Doug Parker has made clear he didn't mean to make those uh, make that connotation in any way. And Gary Kelly, after the hearing, came over and said that he was absolutely with me on the masks and um, that <laughs> I should not take that any other way. So uh, I'm here to report that because it's really important that the public hear that everyone is on the same page with this. Flight attendants run into trouble when communication is not clear and not consistent. And you're right. That makes it a much more difficult job for us, for the enforcers in the cabin, and then often taking the brunt of that conflict and sometimes violence. Uh, I feel for the flight attendants. I've flown several times in the past few months because it's like suddenly they're substitute teachers in a bad middle school class. I mean, even as it is, there are several passengers that, that I've seen who are either not wearing masks or not wearing them correctly. And it seems like they're having to make a calculation. Do I risk my own safety uh, by continuing to remind people uh, about this mandate or what? I mean, what's to be done here? So there's a lot of danger in this that you are alluding to because on an airplane, you can't just walk away from the problem. You can't call for additional help. Um, you've got to deal with it right there. And when conflicts burst out, uh, there's a lot of humanity crammed into a short, a very small space and things can get very heated and get very dangerous very quickly. So yes, we have to deal with uh, de-escalation all the time. But when there is this constant fighting about this, what it does is it puts people in a position who are safety professionals 
and being hesitant about doing those safety responsibilities and giving people safety instructions. And that's not just on masks. It's all the things that keep people safe on an airplane. So that's a concern. It's also a concern, though, with these outbursts that these are huge disruptions and distractions. And we are handing something to people who wish to do greater harm, another tool to use as a distraction that may make us miss a, a cue of a coordinated attack. So we have and, to get this under control. Yeah. And Sarah, how is this going to affect labor relations within the industry going forward? Because this is an issue unlike any that I can recall seeing where, you know, you've got video of flight attendants at risk. The, the job yeah. has been sort of politicized. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know if there are specific things that your members are, are asking for uh, yes. to, to help them to do their jobs going forward. But I, I imagine this could be an issue. Yes. Going forward with labor. Yes. Well, look, I mean, first and foremost, what airlines had to do was negotiate with us incentives over the holidays. There are more flight attendants on the job now per airline flight hour than there were pre-pandemic. But people are not picking up those voluntary overtime hours that they were so uh, regularly picking up before the pandemic. And that's why you saw some of the flight disruptions in the fall. So airlines are going to have to pay more. And that that is one thing. But we also have to deal with the issue, too. We have to have clear communication. We have to have clear consequences. It's good that the DOJ is finally making this a priority and starting to prosecute. But until we get through that and people are landing in jail, we're not going to see that as a real deterrent. Wow. So we have to do other things. We also have to stop the to-go alcohol in the airports because this is pushing alcohol, a major contributor to these events, and giving people the wrong idea that they can actually carry their own alcohol onto the plane or that they should be drinking right up to the last minute before they fly. I hear that. And I also hear implied that those CEOs might have caused a ding to their bottom line by making the flight attendant's job more difficult, not wanting to pick up shifts. Sarah, thank you. Thank Sarah you. Nelson. We're just a little more than a week away from Christmas, but it's not looking merry and bright for some retailers. The names lagging the market are next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are mixed right now, though the F&P at one point was trading above its record close of 47.12. The Dow is the only index higher for the week, while the Nasdaq is down more than 2% since Monday. So what's going on under the surface? Here's a look at the divergence between growth and value today. The S&P value stocks on pace for their best month since March, higher today by about 1%, while growth is lagging about 1.5%. And we can't talk about growth without mentioning Apple, which is someday's value too. It's ambidextrous. Shares on pace today for their worst day since Black Friday, meaning investors are going to have to wait at least a bit longer if it's going to hit $3 trillion in market cap. The share price to watch there is $182.86. E-commerce names also under pressure. Wayfair, Overstock, and Etsy among the biggest laggards, falling 5 to 10% today and all down between 20 and 30% for the month. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hey, Rahel. Hi, John, and here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden has signed the bill raising the U.S. debt limit into law. It averts what would have been an unprecedented default by the federal government. Biden signed the bill less than two days after Congress approved it. Federal regulators reportedly plan to ask several buy-now-pay-later firms for details on their business practices. Reuters reports that some officials have raised concerns that the lending plans put consumers at risk. New car sales are expected to rise just 1% next year. Industry watcher Edmund says that consumer demand continues to grow as car makers struggle to increase production. 
And criticism continues for Urban Meyer after he was fired as head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Multiple sports writers slamming his coaching style and the Jaguars 2-11 record this season. Last straw appears to have been a report that Meyer kicked a player during practice in August. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Actually, tonight on the news, a look more at the sort of fallout uh, over that. John, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. And coming up, Google versus Disney, Reddit's IPO plans, Bank of America looks under the hood, and a love of toast. <laughs> That's all ahead in Rapid Fire next. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to help break down the headlines are CNBC's Dom Chu and Julia Borston and Marianne Montaigne, Portfolio Manager at Gradient Investments. First up, Bank of America initiating Robinhood with an underperform and a $22 price target. Shares down more than 6% today, cut in half since its IPO in July. B of A arguing that Robinhood's current valuation underappreciates big risks, including payment for order flow regulation and the end of meme stock and crypto volatility. Marriott, how did everybody not see this coming? I mean, really? Yeah, well, uh, they've already got about one third share of that target 20 to 34 year old um, marketplace, and they're dominating in crypto in their trading activities. I, I just don't see a clear pathway to generating earnings over the next few years, so that leaves us on the sidelines. Yeah, Marianne, I get it. Uh, Dom, what has really changed that people didn't see coming? Is it just this? Is it the interest rates? It's not necessarily just interest rates. It's more this notion, uh, to Marianne's point here, that you cannot grow that much more than you've already got, especially when it comes to the under-traded population. And, and what I mean by that is those people that Robinhood really targeted, especially over the last couple of years during the pandemic, and certainly with regard to some of the anecdotal evidence that was out there with regard to people who had gotten stimulus checks and timed it with certain account openings at places like Robinhood. If you've already penetrated a lot of the market that you think you could have gotten, then it could be a growth issue going forward. So with Robinhood, it's not to say that their growth trajectory is negative going forward. It's just that it's going to be a lot slower. And I'm not sure why, to your point, John, a lot of folks at the IPO, which wasn't that long ago, didn't figure that that was going to be part of the population in terms of the overall risks to the company. All right. Well, we'll continue to fold in all sorts of that commentary as we move on. Next up, Google now facing off against Disney in its latest YouTube TV fight resolved a dispute with Roku just last week. Google says it'll drop a number of Disney channels and increase YouTube TV's monthly subscription by 15 bucks if a payment agreement is not reached by tomorrow. In a statement, YouTube saying, quote, our ask to Disney, as with all our partners, is to treat YouTube TV like any other TV provider by offering us the same rates that, ser that services of a similar size pay across Disney's channels for as long as we carry them. Disney responding confidently, saying, quote, Disney has a highly successful track record of negotiating such agreements with providers of all types and sizes across the country and is committed to working with Google to reach a fair market-based agreement. Julia, Treat them like everybody else. I thought we were supposed to be in a new era of a la carte digital magic where this sounds awful lot like a cable carriage agreement dispute that we've known about for decades. 
It does indeed, because that's ultimately what YouTube TV is. It's a streaming bundle that's an alternative to the pay TV bundle. But I think there's something so fascinating about this negotiation. It is really a microcosm of the next phase of the streaming wars in that YouTube is saying we will cut your prices by $15 if we can't keep these 18 essential channels in there. If you don't get ESPN, you don't get ABC, we're going to save you $15 a month. But YouTube even tells their subscribers that they can spend $14 a month and get the full Disney bundle, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu for $14 a month to replace those lost channels. So that sort of indicates that it's complicated and that the cost of ESPN and those other channels is high. Barton Crockett, one of the analysts who covers these companies, he told me he thinks ultimately they will settle. They'll come to an agreement. Disney will get what they want. But down the line, TV ratings continue to decline. We could see some of these bundles not include ESPN, John. Dom? So I would say this, as as a non-YouTube TV subscriber, it was fascinating to me that the total bundle with Disney's channels included was $65, and you knock it by 15 down to 50-ish if they don't have it. So if you're a YouTube channel or YouTube TV subscriber, is roughly 23, 24% of the total value of YouTube TV just Disney? It was a fun question for me to ask myself, <laughs> would I want to pay that kind of stuff just for the access to those 18 specific channels? That was my takeaway on that. Marianne, this doesn't sound like magic to me. I thought that the digital distribution was going to make this all simple. YouTube TV, it sounds like a cable provider. Cable providers are supposed to be boring. Does this show weakness for YouTube or does it show potential strength? For the traditional distributors, or which I should mention, Comcast, the parent of CNBC, has a dog in this fight. Uh, what is it? I think it's the really the the strength of YouTube when they've got eighty uh, percent of uh, the key watchers using YouTube every month, and I don't think they're including the sixty uh, plus who also are are uh, using it quite a bit. I think there's just tremendous strength in YouTube and Google has threatened uh, similar action uh, with NBC Universal, with Roku. They've had the upper hand. I think they're gonna have the upper hand in these negotiations too. All right, next up, Morgan Stanley upgrading Toast to outperform from neutral, but cutting its price target by $10 to 53 bucks a share. The firm says the restaurant software company is poised for rapid scaling and has strong growth potential. Toast went public back in September. Shares have fallen 45% since the debut. Dom, you think this is levered somewhat to reopening, uh, to, to small business growth, or what? It certainly is. It's certainly levered to the restaurant business because that's what Toast does, right? They provide the kind of infrastructure, technically speaking, for everything from the point of sale on, on down through the supply chain all the way to when the, the, the kitchen turns out your meal and the server can actually serve it to you. So we're talking about a, an e-commerce type solution, supply chain type solution for a restaurant that really starts to scale the more restaurants adopt and get more business. This is very much a reopening play, but... The one thing that you have to keep in mind for a company like Toast is whether or not you are too levered to just that reopening trade. For a lot of these, it's about Toast signing up more restaurants. If that doesn't happen, then maybe Toast's growth profile isn't as all as as much with it, I guess, as investors want it to be. But that's going to be a real key here for certain folks out there who want to take a, 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 an investment in Toast. You got to figure: is there going to be the opening channels? in the post-pandemic era that can justify some of those valuations. Marianne, bottom line, how much should investors be willing to pay for toast? 
I'm not sure. We're not one of them. And this goes back to Robinhood as well. Uh, We don't usually or we don't ever uh, touch IPOs until they've had at least three quarters of a publicly traded company under their belt since they have a great tendency to disappoint. Mm. Um, But I also point out in this particular situation, you've got a restaurant industry that's facing about 20 percent increase in food costs next year. The larger players have their own end to end software. So we're really, really relying on the smaller chains to adapt this. And that might be a tough sell this coming year. So uh, even with the stock back 45% from the first quarterly report where they did disappoint, uh, we'd still refrain from buying. What if we call it avocado toast, though? People seem willing to pay more for that. Well, finally, Reddit confidentially filing for an IPO after becoming a hotspot for retail investors. In its most recent funding uh, round back in August, Reddit raised $700 million, giving an evaluation of more than $10 billion. Julia, a lot's changed since August, though, including uh, the, the fate of some of the, the stocks and currencies that made Reddit so popular. Well, look, Reddit was at the center of this meme trade that really defined the beginning of this year. But I think there's so much we still don't know about this company. I mean, John, you know how excited I am to read the S1 and get a sense of these financials. But there's also this question of, you know, how much growth potential is there? It is a kind of complicated platform to navigate. They've made progress in making it easier, but it's not as simple and accessible for people to just jump into conversations as, say, on a Facebook, which is sort of the gold standard in terms of making it easy to use. So I think there's a question of how many more people can they get on board? And are advertisers concerned about the type of content that sometimes is on Reddit? Do they need guarantees that everything is safe? That's something that Reddit has been working on, but seems like there's always more work to do there, John. To be clear, dear viewers, Julia Borston is literally excited to read the S1. She is not being sarcastic. Marianne, (laughs) are you equally excited? I am. I'm a financial nerd, so I love reading these things. And, you know, things that stick out include $100 million, over $100 million in revenue during the second quarter. That's pretty amazing. Uh, they've got a daily visitor count of $50 million, and there's 100,000 different uh, specific forums, each with their own moderator. Uh, how can they generate profits in the next two years? As some people are speculating, I can't see it as yet, but I'll keep diving into those S1s. Dom, your thoughts? I mean, $10 billion is a cute little social network. Um, You know, when you look at the category. Not just so cute or little at all. But here's what I would say. I would say for many of the massive IPO, the multi-billion dollar valuation IPOs that have come to market, just look at how many of them right now are trading below where their IPO valuations were in a market that's sitting near record highs. So if you want to talk about Reddit, this is nothing with regard to what the fundamental valuation should be. You wonder what investors will feel about those valuations in the beginning part, right? right after the IPO versus, say, three to six months later. Yeah, I mean, I just I mean, market cap snap is, you know, like $70 billion. Uh, Twitter, where is that? I don't know. I got a lot of stocks on my screen. Thank you, Dom Chu, Julia Borston, Marianne Montaigne. Up next, on the go, one airline CEO sees profit ahead in 2022. What to expect from Rivian's first report and one traditional automaker's new charging project. That is next. Welcome back. We are following three big stories in the transports today. Delta CEO Ed Bastian giving CNBC his 2022 outlook. Rivian reports its first quarterly results since going public after the bell today. And Ford is making a commercial EV 
push. We just did rapid fire. Now let's do rapid fill. Joining me now to discuss is <laughs> Phil LeBeau. Phil, let's start with your interview with Ed Bastian earlier today. What was the biggest yep. surprise for you uh, that that unit, um, how busy they are on, on a unit basis, the, the profit? Yeah, for the fourth quarter, we're going to be seeing them turn a profit. That is the new guidance from Delta. Previously was expecting a loss. Now, the stock has pulled back today in part with all of the airline stocks on the concern about Omicron as it spreads, as it becomes more prevalent, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. And that's brought all the airline stocks back. But Ed Bastian, when we talked with him and he said, look, the last 10 days of this holiday season are going to be better unit revenue wise than 2019 at the same time in terms of corporate travel. He says, well, it depends on the size of the business. Uh, I, we were just talking to Sarah Nelson. Moving at a much faster uh, pace, those- small business. Small business is moving at a much faster pace. Small business is probably closer to 75 percent restore and the large corporates, as you say, are are down closer to the 50 percent level. Uh, A lot of this tied to office reopening. And we see a direct correlation as offices are reopened and people are returning to office. That's the trigger to get back out on the road. Real quick, in terms of costs, which Delta says it will see higher costs in 2022, we're seeing this with a couple of airlines out there. Remember, it's going to take some time here, and those costs, because they've been higher than expected, that's also weighing on the stocks, uh, not just today, but we've seen that over the last couple of months, John. Yeah, didn't mean to talk over Ed Bastian there. Uh, We were just talking to Sarah Nelson from the Flight Attendance Union. Made me wonder, are the CEOs watching that cost line and the idea that... um, mask issues, conflict with passengers, making flight attendants uh, feel less willing to pick up extra shifts. Is that a significant, perhaps, uh, factor in costs heading into 2022 or no? I'm not sure that's a factor in terms of costs. It is part of the business that is another issue that has to be managed. But let's be clear, despite the comments from uh, both uh, Doug Parker as well as Gary Kelly yesterday, which both of them, you see their staff are now walking back those comments, they understand. The White House calls the shots here. And the airlines, generally speaking, realize there's no there's nothing to be gained by coming out and saying, well, I'm not really sure masks are, are a smart idea. So I think you're not going to see any more commentary in that regard anytime soon. All right. Rivian set to release its first quarterly report as a public company after the bell today. Yep. Phil, um, what are the risks here in this report, right? Because, I mean, the valuation is huge. It's not being valued based on what it's putting out today. So what, what should investors expect here? Well, it's not in the numbers, John. Let's be clear. These are the final Q3 numbers. The preliminary numbers came during the IPO. They're not going to be dramatically different. It is the conference call. That is what people will be focused on. What does RJ Scaringe say about three different areas that are going to get the most attention? First of all, R1T, pickup truck production, as well as orders and deliveries, as well as R1S, which is the electric SUV. And then you've got the Amazon delivery van schedule. When do they actually start delivering those to Amazon? Should be very soon. And finally, future production plans. We know that they're going to be building all three at their plant in Illinois. Are they planning on expanding? So all of those will be uh, focused today for the conference call. And again, it is the conference call. It is not the numbers that should be the focus this afternoon. We'll be listening to that call. uh, And I think it starts at 435 o'clock. We'll be on that call. We'll have it uh, during closing bell as well as fast money. Looking forward to hearing about it. And finally, Ford is launching a charging network for its commercial customers in a push to transition to EVs. What's that going to look like, Phil? 
Well, this is all about the commercial business, and the commercial business doesn't get that much attention from retail investors. I think people look at what's being sold at an auto dealership. That's what they focus on. The commercial business is a huge business, and Ford has been one of the leaders in that area. Ford Pro is the new program that they're going to be working with their fleet customers in terms of those fleets going electric. That means everything from managing which vehicles need to be charged, how they're charging up those vehicles. If Ford can establish with their fleet customers, look, this is a smart way for you to convert over to electric. We can help you. We can manage you uh, or help you manage your fleet. Big, big profits there. And that's what Ford Pro is all about. All right. Rapid fill. It was a double pun, Phil, because it's transport. So it's rapid and it's fill. Yeah. Ah, There you go. Thank you. McDonald's now has reached a settlement with disgraced former CEO Steve Easterbrook. The details of one of the largest non-criminal corporate clawbacks is next. And before we head to break, take a look at the vaccine makers. A CDC panel subcommittee saying moments ago it supports preferential recommendation for mRNA COVID vaccines like Moderna's and Pfizer's over J&J's COVID vaccine. Be right back. Welcome back. McDonald's settling its lawsuit against former CEO Steve Easterbrook. Kate Rogers joins me now with the details and how much it's going to cost him. Kate. Hey there, John. Well, McDonald's, as you mentioned, settling with former president and CEO Steve Easterbrook. Easterbrook returning equity awards and cash currently valued at more than $105 million, which the company says he would have forfeited had he been truthful at the time he was fired in November of 2019. Now, as a result, he would have been fired for cause instead of without cause. Easterbrook was accused of having consensual affairs with four subordinates and for deleting evidence of those affairs from his company phone. He'd push courts to throw the case out because he said the evidence was easily found on company servers. In a statement, Easterbrook said, quote, during my tenure as CEO, I failed at times to uphold McDonald's values and fulfill certain of my responsibilities as a leader of the company. I apologize to my former co-workers, the board, and the company's franchisees and suppliers for doing so. Now, recently, Goldman Sachs tried to claw back $174 million in executive bonuses that were tied to the 1MDB scandal. Senior execs like Lloyd Blankfein and David Solomon returned their share, but Former top exec Gary Cohn refused to return the money, instead donating it to charity. Just one example, John, of how difficult some of these clawbacks can be. And this one, really a landmark for McDonald's and Easterbrook. Yeah, and Kate, McDonald's announced another settlement today. What, What can you tell us about that one? That's right. McDonald's just in the last two hours announcing a settlement with Herb Washington, who had filed a lawsuit alleging racial discrimination back in February. Washington was the company's largest black franchisee. At one point, he's agreed to leave the system. McDonald's has purchased his 13 locations for $33.5 million. It said the court did not find the company had violated any laws, John. All right. Uh, Kate Rogers, um, is it unusual to get a couple of settlements like that uh, at once? It, It seems like it might be. It is certainly, and this is these are just two that we mentioned. There was another one last week uh, with Daryl and James Bird out of Tennessee, also two black franchisees accusing the company of racial discrimination. They also settled with McDonald's last week, agreed to leave the system. The company purchased their four locations as well. So highly unusual to get three big settlements like this in just one week, for sure. All right. Kate Rogers, thank you. Now, uh, as we head to power lunch, I will note the Dow hanging on an unusual day, actually being pulled lower by Apple, Microsoft and Salesforce, but still managing to be in the green. That'll do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma. Yay! Trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com/get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.